All right, so you guys know that we are paired up with flatbooks.com and we just want to take some time to remind you that if you're looking for practical, flexible resources for your music classroom, you've got to head over to flatbooks.com. That's flat-books.com and check out all of their innovative eBooks and lesson plans that can be used in your classroom today. It's so cool. You download them right to your computer um, and you can start using them immediately. And just for listening to the podcast, if you use the code MUSICCAST20, that's M-U-S-I-C-A-S-T-2-0, at checkout, you'll receive 20% off your entire purchase. All right, folks, thank you for joining us for another episode of the MusicCast podcast. Um, Today we are joined by... Abby Van Koppenberg. Abby, thank you very much for waking up. I know you're in a different time zone than us to chat with us. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for having me today. Um, and so we're, Marissa and I are personally very excited for this talk because this is probably one of the, the conversations on a podcast that we know the least about. So I think we have the most in terms of uh, honest, super curious questions rather than just interview questions. Um, so as we get into it, could you just give us a little background about um, who you are and what got you to where you're at professionally right now? Um, well, I have a unique and interesting background in terms of where I've arrived. Um, first off, I have to say that I'm excited to talk to you about this topic, but all of um, my background related to this is really drawn from my experience. Uh, I'm kind of known for moving from place to place. I originally got my undergraduate degree in the Midwest thinking I was going to be a high school band director. Um, and then about uh, two or three days before I received my first job, which was actually in Arizona, I got the switcheroo that I was no longer going to be the school's band director, but that I was launched into a K-8 general music and uh, middle school choir position. But it actually ended up um, putting me on the course of becoming a general music teacher. And since then, I have taught in Arizona and the greater Phoenix area, San Antonio in Columbia, South Carolina. And now I've just recently started my PhD in music ed at the University of Kentucky. So all these um, different paths have led me to work with a wide variety of students with different backgrounds. And it's really made me passionate about the topic that we're going to speak about today. When you got out of curiosity, when you got, um, when you get that call, did you, was your aspiration to absolutely be a high school band director as you went? I think as many of my music education friends from the Midwest know, there's kind of this path that you think we're all going to become high school band directors and do marching band. Um, and then when I got to my first K-8 job and started the general music path, it just really became my passion. Um, and I pursued my master's degree at Arizona State University, where I really focused on general music and also became a nationally board certified teacher in vocal music. So I found out that really where I'd got my undergrad was completely different than the course of where I should have been. I do feel like I don't, Marissa, I'm not sure for you in terms of orchestra, but I think that vast majority of band directors, I think the aspiration always goes high school. And then it's so easy to experience one other thing and you go, "Mm, maybe this is a, this is more, I, I remember it was always high school just because that's what you think and that's what you want. And then I remember observing an elementary band class and that was what I wanted to do. And I'm not on that end right now, but it was just, it's, it happens, it flips on a dime. So it's very interesting. I'm also um, a flute player originally, but going and teaching general music, I became um, more experienced with ORF and really experiencing non-traditional musicianship through music technology. And it just kind of opened my eyes to what musicianship could be. So I'm 
a little bit different than the path where I started. Did you like, did the, did the act of moving back and forth across uh, the country and all these different places, did that, um, did you see very different teaching styles as you bounced all over the place? Um, definitely. And different schools that I worked at allowed me to collaborate with different people and just work with different student populations. And it was very unique to see um, the way that different schools reacted to the student populations that compose them. Um, in Phoenix, I worked with a very high population of Hispanic and Latinx students. Uh, we were, had a lot of students that were recent immigrants. And um, similar when I moved down to San Antonio, just really um, indicative of the culture around there. In South Carolina, I worked with a large population of students that were Black. And just seeing these different students and their different communities really opened my eyes to the fact that we need to constantly be reassessing how we're teaching and looking at our teaching to see that we're reflecting the students with whom we work. I think that um, my very first job was a string job. I did, I went the exact opposite. I was like, I came out and I wanted to be a high school band director. And then the first job I got was middle school and elementary school strings. And the one thing I do admittedly miss about it is I feel like I felt like I was in deeper water and my I feel like I was so much more receptive to learning new things and stuff. And I like being more comfortable in my job now, but that first little bit of just learning. Um, and I guess what I regret as I hear you talking about it is I, I came to a very comfortable like clientele of people. So I didn't have that. I had that educational professional kind of revitalization and revolution, but I didn't have it culturally. Um, but as you talked about it, as you go and work with all these different populations of people, um, if we swing into your current work and what you do now. And um, uh, we had someone nominate you to be on the podcast because of the work that you are doing in trauma-informed teaching. How did that come to be as you shift around and move around and see these different uh, cultures? Um, well, what brought me to where I'm at right now, currently a PhD student at the University of Kentucky, um, this is a big jump for me, and I decided to move this course because I'm very passionate about preparing pre-service teachers to making sure that they are equipped to feel really confident for the new, you know, environment that we're teaching in because things teaching today is so different than what it was. So this career jump was um, a long time coming, and I'm very excited to start it. And I, um, I kind of got into trauma-informed teaching um, framed with thinking about all the students with whom I've worked before, but then also the newer students with um, whom I'm working now. So uh, one of the responsibilities that I have is in, um, I have a teaching assist assistantship at UK and I teach uh, two undergrad sections of pre-service teachers. They're not music teachers, just um, general education teachers right on the beginning of getting into their practicum in the teacher education program. And looking at these students and seeing kind of the trauma that they are experiencing going through college, doing becoming pre-service teachers in the middle of a pandemic, a lot of them dealing with the, the issues that are encountering in America right now, made me focus on having a couple of specific classes this semester where we talked about it and addressed it. And from that, I've drawn on the experiences from the K-12 setting to really hopefully prepare them and get them thinking about we need to be thinking about students' trauma. We need to be thinking about these bigger issues in America right now. It may be uncomfortable. It may be hard, but it's something that's really important for us to look forward to. Do you have, I, I think it's interesting, like the use of the word trauma. Um, do you have a definition for how you use that word just because I think a lot of our listeners are like, okay, students, they don't, they don't experience trauma when you think about like, you know, a car crash or something like that. So like, 
Can you uh, just frame how you use that word for the listeners? Yeah. Um, so when I'm looking at trauma, I originally grew my knowledge just by reading, exploring independently, really digging into research and really trying to find where this topic, is, topic has come from. Um, and the main beginning line of trauma-informed education starts with a, a study done by the CDC in the 90s. And they define trauma as any sort of experience that causes a long-term negative implication or may cause a long-term negative implication on the student. This could be something as um, they're experiencing some sort of um, abuse or homelessness. They may have experienced um, great loss. Any of these sort of large-scale tra um, traumatic events that can impact them in the long term. It's not guaranteed that a student that will have um, a trauma in their life will be negatively impacted, but studies are showing that these students are, um, that it's a possibility and it shows long-term things. It makes learning more difficult. In adulthood, they're more likely to experience health issues, anxiety. Um, I, the catalyst for originally thinking about this was at my most recent job in Columbia, South Carolina. We just simply had a teacher PD. And one day we started to talk about this. We discussed ACEs and ACEs are adverse childhood experiences. And as difficult as it was, we went as a, as a group, as a staff, and took a quiz where you can find your ACE score. You can look and see what is my number, how many of these things have I experienced, so you can better think about your personal trauma and the way it may impact you long term. And it was a great experience for me to begin in, um, having this discussion with my fellow colleagues because it really made us think about the students with whom we work and the why. Because generally, the trauma that these students experience are, is not overt. They won't come and tell you exactly what happened to them. You may not have a student's whole story, but what will manifest itself in the classroom will be their behaviors, um, whether they're showing that through um, tiredness, through anxiety, through low academic performance. Um, the students that I worked with that I had age aren't all necessarily to the point where they can express what's truly going on. And you kind of have to become a detective to really think about learning their whole story, understanding their trauma, so that way you can better prepare your classroom for a safe space for them, because that's all they want. That's all they need is a safe space. How mainstream do you feel like this overarching idea as an awareness to trauma-informed teaching is right now? Because I, and as, as you describe this, I can, <laughs> sorry, dog. Um, I can, I can, I mean, obviously, I think it's very easy for like a handful of students to kind of come to mind and you think of different things they've been through, but it's a very case by case. And I think it just comes up as it is. And this act of being a detective and really starting to ask those questions of why are they tired or why are they this way? Um, is this something that's, that's up and coming and in the front of people's mind more, or is this something that we hope to like direct more attention to? Uh, I really think that this is becoming a little bit more common as we start to look at social emotional learning in the classroom. We're seeing mindfulness becoming more popular as well as culturally responsive pedagogy. These things all intertwine together because they're all related to student well-being. And just as we get to this point in the world where there is so much stress, we're in the middle of the pandemic, there are so many harsh things going on in the world, um, education has to adapt. Education has to think about these things to make learning successful for the students. We have to be their advocates. And when you think of how it 
how they meld together and how they mold. Is this, um, is this a practice or a concept that we ideally teach our teachers and they just use it to inform their curricular teaching? Or is this something that has to be a little more embedded into the, the, just the pure fundamental process of teaching in and of itself? I think that it needs to be a combination of both. I think that individual teachers really need to seek out um, the research that has been done on this, see if they can experience um, professional developments related to it. But I, I fear people thinking, well, I'm going to go teach trauma-informed now. I'll go to that PD and, and I have it and it's a checkbox. When really it's such a broad um, scope of what we have in the classroom, the, the types of trauma the students are experiencing, the where they're reacting, it really needs to be almost a cultural and a mind shift in the classroom to see how we're going to adapt the classrooms today to be more trauma-informed. And just in, in a parallel, I think that's one of the things that, and I'm, I have a smaller focus area in terms of things, but that's where I struggle with um, some of the application of the social uh, social emotional learning processes, because I think that we talk about them as a PD and in the conversation, it's very easy. It's very easy for someone to ask, how are these implied in your classroom? Or how do you use these in your classroom? And you can say, I do it this way, this way, this way. But then no change necessarily happens. There's not an expectation to do it and anything. It's just, I sat there for two hours and I told you I do it. And then I go and I do the same thing. And when you have those instances of those students that have unfortunately experienced trauma of some kind, we acknowledge it and we put it on our radar, but that just, it, it, uh, it clarifies the focus on that child and ignores the potential of it all over the place. And I think, I don't, I don't know how that works. And I think part of it is the expectation. I don't want to say like a graduation requirement or the expectation of how we teach the kids on a more, uh, like a wider level. But I, I feel like it's so, unfortunately, it so often gets lost in the process as just something we acknowledge. And that's from my own experience. I'm not trying to generalize anywhere else beyond my things. It's, it's really important. And I think the shift needs to go not only within the, the individual teachers and the pre-service teacher programs to really put this into the curriculum, but within the individual schools, particularly the administration. Um, an administration can make or break a school. You know, They can really promote the right kind of environment for students or they can bring them down. And I was truly blessed that my most recent school in South Carolina had an excellent administration that really focused on the whole child and really enacted a lot of change and really evaluated things like the discipline policy of the school and how we used our support staff to better assist students, really being hands-on with teachers to make sure that their practice was um, trauma-informed to make sure that they were supporting students to be for the students. And so I think it's on many levels that it's, it is going to be something that we have to provide teachers education for, that the PD is good, it gives them the foundation. But you're right, there has to be that follow-through, not only from um, individual teachers and new teachers and their mentors, college programs. It's got to be interwoven on many layers to make sure that this is an effective practice that works in all school settings. So I'm curious, especially in the COVID era where teachers are being asked to do so much, I'm imagining our administration bringing this into our school um, right now when it's a time when it's probably very needed. And also I apologize if you hear my dishwasher. Um, <laughs> in a time where it's probably very needed and the teachers being asked to do more or be trained on another subject or, um, you know, 
because teachers, if we're using this definition, teachers have also been through quite a bit of trauma. There's been loss and all of that kind of stuff that we've experienced um, in many ways. So how does this look in a classroom? How, you know, what are some strategies that teachers can easily implement? Or is it truly like it needs to come from um, pre-service teaching experiences or is it something that happens over time? Is it easily implemented? I think there are many layers and I want to talk about before I move into the, the what of how this looks like addressing the, the, the impact of this on teachers. Um, because one of the things that motivated me to talk with the undergrads with whom I work about this is secondary trauma. Because going and working with students that have trauma, you in, se in, in essence being empathetic individuals that most teachers are, at least I hope they are, will internalize what's going on. So I think it's important to bring this, this thought to, yes, we're helping the students, but also we need to use it as a framework for looking at supporting teachers because this whole experience going through everything with COVID, dealing with the changing deadlines for, for distance learning or not fearing for your health, that trauma-informed education, yes, is for the students, but also we need to look at it for a lens of teachers and really think about how can we support these teachers as they support students. So it's, it's definitely multiple levels. Um, in terms of what this looks like in the class, um, I've used this mo mostly primarily um, in the context of a middle school chorus and, and, and my K-5 general music classrooms. And working as a music teacher, it's a great way to really start with trauma and forward teaching because music is so powerful and music is so emotional and it gives students a way to express themselves. Um, so I think back to the situation that I taught in Phoenix. I worked primarily with middle school students, which made it a little bit easier to speak about these hard issues. They were more self-aware, they were more open, um, they were just a little bit more mature to deal with this initially. Um, and I used a lot of experiences with songwriting, journaling, um, letting the students do projects in which they use music to express and speak back to what they were experiencing and using that as a focus. I use a lot of popular music, student choice music, and creating a space and a dialogue for them through music to process what they're going through has been great. And it also gives them ownership because part of, part of dealing with trauma is feeling valued, feeling important, especially if a student had gone through something previously, like where they've been abused or, or negatively spoken to by an important person, um, or if they've witnessed something traumatic going and speaking back to it through their words, especially through songwriting, that has been huge. Um, with the K-5 setting, uh, I've really more recently gotten into mindfulness, and I know that's very chic, and a lot of people are doing that in classrooms today. Um, it's made me think about how this can help students and how it can also not necessarily be the right fit for a lot of students because mindfulness is a lot of thinking about your emotions and being present, doing calming things, creating this calming environment. And for a lot of students that I worked with who had experienced trauma, it was actually doing things like mindfulness, calm movement, deep breathing was scary or frustrating to them because they hadn't gotten to the point of self-regulation yet where they were able to really feel and control their emotions and then definitely not only feel them experience them but also cope with them and go to the other side where they're calm and 
and relaxed. Um, so in terms of a K5 setting, for me, it's primarily about just setting up a space and knowing your student and creating a space where they feel safe. We're creating a safe space where they feel safe to share their, their words, to share their emotions, where you validate their emotions, but teach them that the emotions are okay to express, but they can't own you. That it's okay, we've experienced these trauma, we've had these difficult things, it's a part of you, but it isn't all of you. So creating a lot of um, lessons with music as a guide to talk about emotions, to talk about how to process emotions, um, giving physical spaces where the students can do that. There's a lot of um, individual things like spaces in my room, like I had my chill zone where students were feeling frustrated. I know that's a very common thing. A lot of teachers are doing that with the zones of like regulation and giving students a space to process, um, using a lot with students who can't express what they're feeling, but they get to express it through art. There's a lot of drawing that happens in my classroom, especially for younger students who may have emotions they can't express, but they can draw a picture. They can color me, color for me. They can tell me through art what they might not be able to say with their words. And just really being mindful of a space to make them feel safe, to make them feel welcome, because once you see and they feel welcome in the class, then you can see well, what has happened to this student? And then you can tailor what you do next with them from them being open with you. How willing do you find students at any level to, because I think one of the things as I hear, and this is, I love hearing these elements of it because I think the thing we talk about all the time is sometimes we get to the point where the kids are in high school and we ask them like, why do you think this is this way or how, what emotion does this give? And sometimes it's the first time they've been asked those questions. And I think partially it's because of fear of, uh, because of a fear of classroom management or just where it could go and things like that. And maybe it's off topic or things like that. How willing do you find them to open up when they're finally asked to express themselves or indirectly to express themselves through art or music and songwriting, anything like that? Um, it takes time, and with moving as much as I have, I've slightly become the expert of let's build relationships as fast as we can, <laughs> because when you move every couple of years, as I've had for various reasons, um, you really need to use your time effectively and know that that trust in the classroom isn't going to incur, occur unless you've built a relationship. You can't just come in as first day of school and say, let's talk about our feelings and let's get all this out, because... Um, it will cause students, no matter whether they've experienced trauma or not, to shut down because there needs to be that level of trust first. Um, so I've definitely seen greater success with students who I've built strong relationships with and actually strong relationships, particularly with parents too. Because if students see me interacting with parents in a positive way, talking to the parents about the students, not just when they're in trouble, but not just when they had a bad day, but to know their story, the students are, aware of how invested you are in them. And once you become invested in them and you show that you are really there for them and why you're asking them these things is because you value them and you value your thoughts, they're much more open to do that. To that point from a, uh, from a teacher level, how, how important is it if these, are, if these are practices that you're starting to implement or you're making these connections with students, how important is it to... Um, tie in the parent component as well. So there's that bridge built to help support the child. It is, it is huge to really build the relationships with parents and 
to really um, use the relationships with parents for the benefits of the students and to know the limitations of that. Because depending on the student, depending on the family, depending on how many children there are, what the parents do, your interactions are going to be different. So building those connections are very important, but there is an, also a knowledge that you may encounter a parent that doesn't want you involved in their life. He doesn't want you to know the backstory because it might not be the greatest backstory. Um, so it's key to know that limitations and, and, and know those boundaries. Um, and one particular situation where the, the parent has, it's been a little bit difficult to wrap my mind around is when I was working in Phoenix, a large population of the students that were enrolled in my choir were um, students that had recently been placed into the foster care system and that they were put um, in the choir because they needed some sort of experience that would give them a sense of community. They were all going through this together. And that one was really difficult because it was finding the boundaries of, I want to support these, have these, these individuals be an active part of my program and finding that boundary of, I'm supporting them, I'm a teacher. You can't parent for parents, especially in this sort of situation where the students temporarily or possibly permanently have not been with their parents. And sorry, go ahead, Marissa. No, that's okay. Um, so I'm curious about a, a comment you made about like the students being placed in choir because they needed this kind of outlet. Are you finding that teachers who are maybe outside of the, I don't, they're called something different everywhere, special subjects or encore subjects, mm -hmm. are they are they willing to implement this as well? Because I feel like oftentimes everyone talks about the importance of um, just the arts in general at any level. You know, it's so important for social emotional well-being and social outlets and this, that, and the other thing. Um, and so like, that's why we'll keep you around. But I, I feel like that's not always um, expected of core teachers, you know? And I think the other thing that comes to mind with all of that is um, time like willingness to give the time and let a kid step aside to, um, you know, be in the chill zone or uh, color or do whatever needs to happen. Um, and this looks different on every level, but what have you kind of found uh, in that sense? I feel that at their heart, most teachers want to have this in their classroom. They want to have that space space for their students and that, if given the proper time and support and resources, they definitely can. But I feel like if there are any educators that may not be on board with this right now, it's more the point of teachers are burned out. Teachers are having to just, they're in survival mode. They're just having to worry about their own personal trauma and the accountability for testing and the, and the expectations for lesson planning. So I believe in my heart that almost all teachers want to have this kind of environment. And if that isn't happening in their class, it is no fault of the teacher. It is just their reaction to the current state that they're being held in, into and the expectations that they're being held to right now because teaching, I, I decided to move into higher education at this point um, because it worked with my family situation and relocation for, for my husband's job, things like that. I could not imagine teaching K-5 right now, being the empathetic person that I am. I don't know if I would have made it through this year with what's expected. So I really think we have to look to the side of 
the teachers and seeing all the things that they are experiencing and really, like I said, take this trauma-informed instruction, think about it, how it applies to the students, but think about how the teachers are experiencing it too. Um, I think there's, in that in and of itself, there's so much to unpack there in terms of different things that could be said. Um, just to start, in terms of whether you're enacting this or you're kind of wrapping your head around what things are now, how important is it to for teachers to find support systems or where do you find maybe the best instances of them finding support systems for themselves? Because I'm sure that if you, if you willingly open yourself up to this level of empathetic teaching for your students, you're, you're not going to find one or two that are in need of this. And that's, that's a tough door to open and take all of that in. Oh yeah, there is, I, I, I am personally guilty of just really giving my soul to my students and really going and, and really just giving my all. I don't have my own children. And I said, I don't know if I could ever have my own kids while being a teacher, just because I feel like sometimes you have to give your so, yourself so much to students. And I think that it's really important that we prioritize self-care of teachers and allow and build them up networks to help them support each other and realize that teacher health care and teacher mental health needs to be a priority and not on the superficial level of, well, we're going to give them cookies on Friday and, and, you know, here's, here's some, here's a, some bubble bath at, at the holidays and a $10 gift card to Starbucks. We need to really think about the policies and the practices that we're instituting for teachers, the expectations, because we're creating a culture that's leading to teacher burnout and it's leading to teachers leaving on mass levels. So we really need to, in our schools, think about how can we create environments, support groups, either mentorship, especially for younger teachers, um, collaboration spaces where the teachers can collaborate and authentically support each other um, in this process. Because I know this is incredibly isolating for everybody to not be able to connect with people to be teaching through a screen. It's incredibly difficult for the students and for the teachers. So we need to think about what we can do on a greater level with policies and at schools to really think about how we can support the teachers to make sure they're getting through this just like the students are. And I think on the, on the hopeful chance that there's any administrators listening to this in any way, I think the most important thing in terms of what you just said, at least for me, from my perspective, is all of those things that you listed of ideas to do are things that are beyond a professional development day. Because mm -hmm. I think this is, this is very easily, and it's great that it is, but it's very easily a topic for an afternoon or for a full day of professional development. But it's so easy to start to enact something like this. And you, it probably, in a lot of ways, if you're doing it right, you're going to hit a moment of feeling uncomfortable fairly quickly. And if it's something that happened three weeks ago on Friday as a professional development, it's way easier to say that felt uncomfy. I won't do that again. But if it's a recurring, the collaboration spaces or the safe spaces or the mentorship, and it's something that's constantly being put in your, on your radar and you have affirmation that it's okay to do, maybe it can start to find its way through a little more. Um, and it's hard. You're right. Like the current, I think the current education right now is what's causing part of the issue as well. And Marissa and I've talked about this and we wrote a little bit about going back and forth in terms of this. I feel like we're so focused and partially for survival. We're so focused on what and how we teach that 
for our own sake, we're ignoring students because we need to stay afloat. And then in and of itself, we're, we're widening the gap between the kids and us. And that's, it's just a scary thing to see. It's so hard right now with um, the pandemic and everything. I, I just keep thinking, give yourself grace because based on everything going on in the world, everybody's running at about 40% capacity in terms of being your best self and what you can handle. And teachers, we all want to be 100%, 120%. So it's that finding that balance of what do we need to do to keep our, our health, our mental health, our our safety, um, keep ourselves together while still providing what we can from students. And in a lot of situations, doing that from a distance through a screen, it's really tough. Um, I'd be very curious for your undergrad students that you had, um, and I'm sure, and I agree with you that I think there are many teachers that want this to be a part of their classroom. Sometimes it's just hard to implement. And also there are teachers that are doing it at varying degrees and maybe it's just not defined for them. When you're speaking to aspiring teachers, how do they how are how receptive are they to this this concept um personally i just have to give a shout out to the students in the in the class in 266 that they've been wonderful to work with and it, it gives me hope to see how these young educators are really thinking about how they want their classrooms to be i've been very pleased to see just the energy and the excitement, even in the face of the fact that they're seeing what their student teaching might be like, what their first teaching career or position might be like, because we don't know when this pandemic is going to be over. We don't know what schools will look like after this pandemic will be over. It brings me a lot of joy and a lot of hope to see their ambition to make schools great. And, and they have brought me a lot of hope to see how they are really thinking about how they want to constantly evaluate their teaching, how they want to grow, how they want to be the best teachers they can. So this is a very small group of which I'm working. It's only 28 and I, I frequently I've got a little bit lighter because at my previous school in South Carolina, I worked with 700 students. Um, and this group is 28 of them, but those 28, they give me hope. And as you're working on the up and and you're you're working with these these aspiring educators and more on the uh, the university level and things like this. Is this an idea that you're seeing spread also from that upper education level as well as something that they want to see more research on, have implemented more and things like that? Um, I am excited. Just one thing I have had to make time for this semester is reading all the research and and getting into you know the next steps with the dissertation and everything. And I am excited to learn more, read more, um, see how this topic is is growing. I know that in terms of cultural response and pedagogy and social emotional learning, that is growing um, quite a lot in terms of the research that's being shared, especially in music education. I'm excited to see how we can think about the process of trauma-informed education more and, and grow the research on this. That makes me very happy because I think, and I, I loved my college experience, but I think that when I look at what I learned in a classroom versus what I learned in observations or with adjuncts. Um, I, so I have such a higher appreciation for what I did in the field and things like that, because I felt like I spent more time actually being asked things beyond process. And I know the process elements are important, but um, there's, I don't feel like there was as much discussion with how to teach the child or the whole child or the whole student um, when I was in school. So it makes me happy to know that that's, that's a trend at the upper level, for sure. 
one of the, one of the reasons I put off going and pursuing the PhD for so long is that I really, at my core, thought I need to make sure I have a really strong foundation as a teacher before I go and begin to work with pre-service teachers. I want to make sure that I've had this experience that I feel really confident in my pedagogy. And then I got to grad school and realized part of going into this field is realizing you don't know everything and that there's so much value in constantly growing and evaluating your process. And so it's been, it's been a good experience for me to see, to be able to use my experience to help these future teachers evaluate what they're going to do once again to the classroom. I thought you were going to say something, Marissa. I saw you. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, no, I'm just, I mean, this is so in line with like I, what Marissa and I talk about quite a lot in terms of di not, not necessarily frustrations with how things are, but just like concern of how things are right now. And I think um, it, you can look at it in two different directions. I agree. I think it lends itself so well to the music classroom. And I think, um, I think that if anything, the emotional aspect of music is so inherent that it's great. The thing I have a harder time connecting them with is the hard work to get something out because there's not as much of that struggle and strife. And then we, we kind of just bottle it up and deal with it. But that element of once you get them to work and actually process and they can make music and they can make something very difficult happen in their own right is where it really links itself and just approaches it from a different direction, which is great. Um, I'm just in my mind looking at the difference between the music classrooms and like a core curricular based classroom in terms of how it would be implemented. It's really, the thing I like about this is that it's really just not a curriculum. It's not just, here's the thought you follow these lesson plans. This, there are different nonprofits, different organizations that are creating, you know, lesson plan templates, things like that. But the biggest thing about it is it's a, it's a mental shift. It's a, it's an environmental shift that it doesn't necessarily need to be, you follow lesson plan A, B, C, D. It's uh, you create a classroom that supports students in a particular way. And I think if teachers can see it and view it from that way, as opposed to, it's just one more thing I'm required to do, one more box I have to check because there's already so many boxes teachers have to check. Um, if they view it from, this is an approach that I can embody in my classroom, it's going to benefit me, it's going to benefit my students, it's going to benefit the school and the greater community. So if teachers want to find more resources on this, like let's say, you know, professional development isn't happening or, and with conferences not happening or not happening at least in person for right now, what are some good um, resources that aren't necessarily behind a scholarly paywall? <laughs> I understand. I have to say going and starting grad school has made it easier to find those things because the yeah. scholarly paywall goes away when you pay tuition. Uh, <laughs> so I am a big advocate for the uh, education blog Edutopia from the, the George Lucas Foundation. Sorry. Um, and they just have a ton of very accessible articles for teachers because, you know, teachers don't have the time to go and necessarily read an entire handbook they can pop on on the website at a five minute break and read an article or a blog. Um, I drew a lot of um, knowledge out of just reading the original research from the CDC study of ACEs in the 90s and realizing obviously that's the 1990s and things have changed, but seeing where that research has gone. Um, the Trauma and Learning Policy Initiative, TLPI, 
um, has some great online resources and some books, and just really going and connecting with other educators to talk about this topic, to find a, find a way to talk about the harder issues that are happening in their classroom. Because when you find the collective of people that are passionate about the same topic that you, you are, you'll be able to share resources, you'll be able to plan together, you'll be able to implement it more. And I hope in the future, when conferences start occurring and I get a little bit more in-depth in my research, I would love to do more presentations on this, but this is only the beginning of graduate school. <laughs> um, awesome, so Kev, do you have other questions on this? I, I'm just, <laughs> I'm thinking about it as I go. And I, th I think, and it's come up, multiple times and Abby you've said it many times I think the thing that I hope people take from it most is the conversation amongst peers both for the self-care of teachers enacting practices like this but also it's so much easier and we're all guilty of it as much as we hate to say it it's so much easier to hear about something for an hour and a half in a professional development get back and then within a week you kind of like you try and do it but then you wean yourself off of it and you just go back to what you've done over and over again and just it's it's a hot button thing we talk about as a conversation point not a mental shift and a fundamental shift in how we teach so it would if it, anyone from an administrative level or someone who's looking for these things listening, it would be just great to make sure we're pushing these and leaning into the conversation aspect of it for sure for the teachers well-being. Absolutely. We haven't, we haven't touched much on the community element of this too, that there's the le many levels of trauma-informed education, that there's what can be done within a classroom, what can be done within a school, and then looking at the bigger picture that a lot of traumas occur because of, um, in, a, in a greater community, communities experience loss, especially depending on, you know, how they're impacted by COVID right now. And, and we need to look um, beyond just what we can do in our four walls and see if it can also be at a community level looking, how can we support students? How can we look at the issues that are in the greater community and help students all the way down to what, at their level, what they need? Uh, well, I think there's, I think there's so much to unpack and I think we could keep going over and over and in terms of this stuff, but um, I, it, I think it's awesome to, for people to be aware of and really start to look at. And I appreciate you coming and kind of highlighting different things and chatting about elements of it for sure. Um, we will link up all of, um, you know, your information that you had sent us. Um, but do you have, information that you'd like to give listeners as to where they can find you or how they can contact you if they have more information. Um, I will share my email. I'm, I always email. It's, I think we're all attached to it right now. Um, and I do have a website that I will be updating more. I will admit it hasn't been updated too much since grad school started, but that is mrsvkmusic.weebly.com. Um, and I'd love to share more resources and um, related to this topic and just to reach out. And if, teachers have questions. I love to collaborate. I love to see how teachers are experiencing things right now and support each other. So don't be afraid to reach out because I would love to see how we can support each other during these unprecedented times, as they say. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Kevin, thank you, yeah. thank you thank for you having me. This was wonderful. <laughs> yeah. And thank you for making yourself available to anyone listening for help because I think that's an awesome an awesome thing that hopefully people take advantage of. Hopefully your email gets flooded and that way when you're focused <laughs> on it you have plenty to do with it. <laughs>